0: Uh, God has set values in the hearts of his family, his church, um, that are to be expressed throughout our lives. In the first week, we looked at God's value of identity. The second week, Steve did a good job last week on the value of uh, the gospel. Next week, we're going to look at what it means to be word-driven. So if you have a Bible at home, and you didn't bring it this morning, but you have a Bible I don't care if it's that big, holy family, like big coffee table Bible. Bring your Bible next week. We're going to talk about being word-driven as a value uh, of God. But this week, we're going to talk about the value of spirit-empowered worship. Spirit-empowered worship. Now, I think one of the first things we need to do uh, to help us get started with a, a, a message or a topic like this is to have a working definition of what worship is, because worship has taken on a lot of different meanings for a lot of different people. So I want to give us a working definition this morning. And the definition is this. Worship is a full-life response to the object of our love. Worship is a full-life response to the object of our love. When we truly worship something, it affects the way we respond. It's a full-life response. We declare that it's worthy. In fact, the word worship is worth-ship. Worship. We, we, We worship that which we place worth on and give it value. And God values His creation's worship. God values His creation's worship. So by nature, just by the very way we're created, we are created to be worshipers. Sometimes our worship is rightly focused on that which is actually worthy, which is Jesus. And sometimes our worship is misdirected and we we worship the created things rather than the created or the creator. When we worship God, our attitudes and our actions reflect what we believe about the character of God, about the conduct of God, and the work that He is doing currently and will do in our lives. And when we believe that, when we put worth on that, adoration and obedience flow. All of our lives, every moment, every aspect, every relationship is to be a deliberate and intentional act of worship. And as believers in Jesus, we have the source that motivates us, that that helps us do what God has called us to do. God never calls us to do something that he doesn't empower us to do, and the same is true in worship. So this morning, the title of the message is Spirit Empowered Worship. So before we go any further, let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the opportunity you give us to come, to be encouraged uh, by other people. Thank you for the opportunity you give us to come and to rehearse your truth through song. Thank you for Seth and the praise team for giving them gifts and talents to lead us. God, now we come and we open your word and we pray that you would teach us in all wisdom and all truth by your spirit. That you would find us, your people, open and ready to receive. God, may this morning be a different morning in many ways than any other morning because we will experience and encounter you corporately and individually. So help us, we pray, by your spirit to understand what we need and also help us understand how we apply the truth that you teach us. Would you take a minute and pray for the person in front of you or behind you, beside you, that they would hear and respond to the Lord this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Now let me start by asking you a question to think about to get your mind around this. When when you hear the word worship, when you hear the word worship, what comes to mind? When you hear the word worship, what comes to mind? What, What posture do you think of? What place do you think of? What people do you think of? Have you ever thought, why do people worship? Have you ever thought, Why do I worship? And I have this as our our first point this morning, is why worship? Well, David in Psalm 95 gives us one of the key psalms on worship. If you have your Bible, Psalm 95, verses 1 through 7. Psalm 95, verses 1 through 7. O come... Let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before His presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to Him with psalms. For the Lord is great and a great King above all gods. In whose hand are the depths of the earth, the peaks of the mountains are His also. And the the sea is His, for it was He who made it. And His hands formed the dry land. Come! Let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker, for He is our God. And we are His people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. Today, if you would hear His voice. We worship God essentially because God created us. He wired us. He hardwired us to worship. In Genesis, it says that we were made in the image of God. Ecclesiastes 3.11, it says that God has set eternity in our hearts So there is within us a longing, a desire to worship that was put there by God. And of course, not everyone worships God. But when you get down to it, everyone worships. One author said this, Everyone has built an altar of worship in their lives to someone or something. You will worship something or someone. The issue is not, will we worship, it's why we worship, and even more specifically, how and who we worship. Now the first time we see the word worship come up in scripture is Genesis chapter 22 verse 5. And in that passage, you're familiar with the story, it's when God asked Abram to take his son Isaac up to the hill, up to the mountain, and sacrifice his son. Abraham planned to sacrifice Isaac in obedience to God's command. And it was a test of Abraham's faith, and it was interesting what Abraham says to his servants on his way up. He says, This, stay here while I and the boy go over there. We will worship, and then we will come back to you. Now, it's really interesting that Abraham hears the command of the Lord and says, We're going to worship. It's a a matter of adoration, it's a matter of action. It's also interesting, as a side note, it says that we will come back to you. We and I, Abraham knew he was going up to kill Isaac. That's a sermon for another day. But a genuine and right relationship with God will naturally flow out adorna- adoration and obedience to God. He is intimately involved in our lives, and in return, we praise, adore Him, and we worship Him. Therefore, true worship is not forced or false. True worship flows naturally from us towards the one who controls our life and destiny. That's why Abraham could say, God, I trust you. You control my life and my destiny. Therefore, I will worship you. So if you boil it down, worship, the why of worship is a matter of trust. Who we trust is who we will worship. Now, King David also wrote another psalm, Psalm 146. is one of my favorites of why we worship God. Now, now, listen to Psalm 146, verses 6 through 10. You can read it on your screen. This is why we worship God, because he is the maker of heaven and earth the sea, and everything in them. He remains faithful forever. He upholds the cause of the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the foreigner and sustains the fatherless and the widow. He frustrates the ways of the wicked. The Lord reigns forever. That's why we worship God. Because He's the only one worth worshiping. Mark 10, 18 says He's the he alone is good. Jonah 2.9 says that he alone is the our our salvation. And people like worshiping all other things. In scriptures, there are all kinds of places where scripture talks about people worshiping and what they worship. In Revelation 9.20, it says they worship demons. Exodus 32, craving carvings, and statues made to represent beasts. Deuteronomy 17.3, the sun, the moon, the stars. In Daniel chapter 3, verse 5, it says that people worship kings or governments. But in Philippians chapter 3, verse 19, Paul talks about people worshiping themselves. Do you know anybody that worships themselves? Our culture is pressing us to worship. We worship our work, we worship our money, we worship our possessions. We worship our status. We even can begin to worship our phones. Because in those things, somehow we can subtly become trusting of those things to grant us the fulfillment that we are seeking inside. And God says this to his church in Israel and to the church today, Exodus 20, verse 3, You shall have no other gods before me. And God's command to worship Him alone remains for His church today. No other gods above Him. And when something or someone is placed before God in worship, we are perverting our trust and the God-given fulfillment that we're seeking. Now anything, by definition, anything placed above God is an idol. Now we don't we don't really talk about idols too much, in the sense that when we think about idols, we think of like carvings, or we think of statues, or we think of this, these kind of things. But an idol is anything placed above God, ahead of God, that takes precedence in our life, the the thing that we think is going to give us the fulfillment, the thing that we become trusting of. And the church is continually tempted through our selfish desires, through cultural influence, to be pulled away from worshiping God alone and placing our trust and fulfillment in something other than God. Now, Bruce Ellis is a a psychologist. He's written books on modern church uh, Christianity and the modern church, and he says this, not only are we capable of creating idols and worshiping them, we are likewise capable of being almost or completely blind to their existence. Worse yet, we are often quite capable of providing a defense, a sometimes remarkably respectable defense, for why our particular idols are worthy or even orthodox. And then he goes on to say this. Our recognition of idols for what they are is often selective. Most of us have reasonably well-developed idol detectors when it comes to detecting the idols of others. Yet it is probably safe to say that all of us have our own particular repertoire of idols. Isn't it amazing how we can see the idols of other people really quickly and somehow be blind to the idols in our own life? And sometimes we can come up with this really brilliant defense of like, it's not an idol, it's just the way it is. Now, verse 21 of the first chapter of Romans gets, I think, to the root of idolatry. Romans 121 says this, Yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. In fact, idolatry is getting our life and our love out of order. Idolatry is getting life and love out of order. Idolatry at its root is forgetting or dismissing or not trusting in the one true God creator. And isn't this in one sense what the message of the Bible is all about? From God says in Exodus 20 you shall have no other gods before me. We looked at in Mark love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. It's an order. Jesus comes along later and says seek first Seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added to you. All the fulfillment, all the things that you're searching for, seek first God. And Jesus' commandments are violated when there is a disorder to God's order. Idolatry is when we set our mind, our will, and our affections on other things, or even ourselves, before God. Idolatry is disordering our loves. Tim Keller wrote a book called Counterfeit Gods, and in it he gives some great insight on idols. He says this, what is an idol? It's anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give, you only what God can give. We think idols are bad things, but that is almost never the case. The greater the good, the more likely we are to expect that they can satisfy our deepest needs and hopes. Anything can serve as a counterfeit God, especially the very best things in life. And some of us this morning will think, well, I I would never create an idol. I, I would never create an idol in my life. I would never make an idol out of something. My life is filled with a lot of good things. And sometimes the good things can become idols. And the temptation is to turn the good things that God has given us into the God things. There are people outside this room who don't go to church, people who aren't believers that are still pursuing something that is trying to fulfill, give them meaning and purpose in their lives, something that they're defending, something that drives them. They're seeking something that only God can give them. And our loves get disordered. And Romans 12 shows us the disaster of that. We began to expect these created things to do for us only what God can do. They were never intended to do that. And great is the fall. Listen to Romans 125. They traded the truth about God for a lie. So they worshiped the served the things, they worship and served the things God created instead of the Creator Himself who is worthy of eternal praise. The created things in our life, even the good created things of our lives, can never match the weight and function of the Creator. And I believe there's three basic categories where idolatry seems to surface, where where this notion of replacing God seems to surface. And the first one is happiness, the second one is meaning, and the third one is identity. And we recognize this idolatry when we start asking ourselves these questions. What brings me the the truest and deepest happiness in my life? Where is it that I'm finding the sense of meaning and purpose and worth? What is forming my identity of who I am and who people think I am? All of a sudden, when we start answering these questions, some things, if it's not God, begin to come out. And come up. And God says, I must be at the top of that order because I am the only one that can fill all those. The why of our worship will directly impact the way we live, and it leads us to our second point. Romans 12, verses 1 through 5, answers the question how we shall worship. It says this, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each measure of faith. Verse 4 says this, For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually members one another. Paul starts out, chapter 12, verse 1, with the word that's, Therefore. And Paul's use of this word, therefore, signified that the action didn't just come out of the blue, it was built on something. There was something that that predicated his therefore afterwards. And when you act following a therefore, it's rooted in something. It it, it has some former action or command linked to it. Now, in verse uh, 1 of chapter 12, Paul is moving, after going through chapters 1 through 11, he's moving from doctrine to practice, from theology to ethics, from foundational stuff to application stuff. And he's saying that the universe exists in order to display God, to display the way he is, his attributes, his power, his character, and we as believers exist for the same reason, to live in such a way, to behave and to act and to obey in such a way that it reveals that God is the one worthy of our worship that there's a lifestyle that calls attention to God first. How many of you wear glasses, contacts? What happens when you, when you take those off? Things get pretty blurry, right? God has given us, inside of us, a worldview, a, a lens to look through. A lens that looks through things that he has given to us like Christ and the cross and the gospel and forgiveness and repentance and fulfillment in him. And in our culture and in our minds, we can begin taking off, taking off the lens that he wants us to look through and and putting different lens on or having no lens at all. And he says, because you have seen these things to be true in me, therefore, live accordingly. God expects us to be obedient to him. Worship is obedience, and obedience is worship. It's what Abraham did. He said, God told me to do this. I will worship him through my obedience. Because this is our spiritual service of worship. One author wrote this: When we worship with an obedient heart and repentant spirit, God is glorified, Christians are purified, the church is edified, and the lost are evangelized. These are all the elements of living, living worship. Listen to Romans one chapter nineteen, uh, Romans chapter one verses nineteen through twenty-three. They know the truth about God. Because he's, it's made it, he's made it obvious to them. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and the sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. Yes, they know God. But they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. They began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. And as a result, their minds became dark and confused. Claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools. And instead of worshiping the glorious, ever-living, they worshiped idols made to look like mere people and birds and animals and reptiles. In this passage, these verses show the downward spiral of taking God out of his rightful place. It all begins with this failure to worship and glorify God, a failure to keep God in His right place. Now, verse 21 says this, Yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship Him as God. Are, are there any areas in your life where God, you go, Yeah, I know, I know God, I, I know God, but. I, I heard you, I heard you a number of times, I know God, but. We can look at a passage like this and say, how can people know God and say, yeah, but? When God is removed as the God we worship and someone or else or something takes his place, there is a perverted trust and a perverted sense of fulfilling, fulfillment. Verse says this do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind psalm thirty-seven fourteen says god will give us the desires of our hearts as we have him as our desire first it's what jesus says when he says seek first the kingdom of god and all these things will be added And Paul says the way that happens is this renewing of our mind, this reordering of our worship. He warns of the world's pursuits, being contrary to the pursuits of those who have been redeemed in Christ. Now what does it mean to have your your, uh, life transformed by the renewing of your mind? It means to think differently. Now, the background again of this is Romans chapter 12 is where Paul has 1 through 11, chapters 1 through 11, given all the background. And he says in chapter 12, verse 1, this transition, Therefore, remember all this stuff about God. His love for you, His acceptance for you, His provisions for you, His protections of you, His security, all the things of God. Remember those things in your mind. And therefore live. Don't be conformed. Don't think about the things of this world fulfilling all the things that I've already fulfilled for you. It's interesting to note that Paul says we are to be changed by the renewing of our minds. Renewing of our minds is the key to Christian life. But it's a process. It's a a progression. A, A work of God does this In us and through us. And there's many times, and you can relate to this, where you think, God, you've shown me that a long time ago. Why have I not gotten it? Anybody else there? And watch this progression. What we know in our minds to be true forms a conviction of our hearts of that truth. And that conviction in our hearts translates into action. Minds to be true hearts to be true, and we live out in truth. But it starts with the renewing of our mind. Now, how do we renew our mind? Some of you are thinking, well, I don't know what my mind needs to be renewed. You should get up there sometimes and just see what's going on up there. It's amazing. We renew our mind through God's Word. Which we'll take a look at more next week so bring your bibles but transformation through their new minds comes as we ingest and read and hold on to god's word there's no shortcuts in fact it's what jesus prayed for us in john chapter 17 make them holy by your truth jesus says teach them your word which is truth I like how one writer put it in seeking to renew their minds. Ordered loves lead to ordered lives, but disordered loves lead to disordered lives. And this idolatry thing, this renewing of our what we see, is done when we get time with Scripture and it renews our mind. It helps us understand what's important, what's to be first. Now think with me just for a second. If you were God, how, how many of you ever thought, man, if I were God, Imagine God creating the world and all that's in it and creating the people in it so that they can know. They know God and a relationship with him, and they created all these things to enjoy for peace and for security and for protection and provision. And then the people that he loves and created all this for turn their back on him and start worshiping all the things that he did and kind of forgot him. And then they have the audacity to complain about the things that he's given them. I love what Jeremiah says Jeremiah 2 5. They worshiped worthless idols only to become worthless themselves. I also like the passage where he goes on later in verse 13. He says, The people have dug for themselves cracked cisterns that can hold no water. The point is this anything other than God is not going to last, it's not going to hold water. Renewing our minds is a move towards maturity and surrender and trust. How do we worship? We worship by the renewing of our minds. It's not something that we reduce to a Sunday morning, even 30 minutes of that Sunday morning. Worship is a 24-7 deliberate act, intentional act, renewing our minds, seeing life as it's supposed to be seen because of what God has done in and through us and living accordingly. Romans 12 shows us this. We either revere the world and conform to the sinful patterns of the world, or we revere God and are progressively conformed into his likeness. One author said it this way. Our worship is either aimed at our ruin, or our worship is aimed at our restoration. But there is an aim in either case. Now what's interesting is Paul, in the middle of this uh, Romans passage, in Romans chapter 12, he adds this thing at the end in verses 4 and 5. After talking about uh, the idols and the destructions, he adds this thing where it says, uh, and you're a member of a body, and all body. And why would he throw a body in the middle of all that? Talk about members. Because we are created to worship in community as well. We need each other. We we come on Sunday morning to worship together, to be reminded together, to, to renew our minds together, rehearse the truths of God together. How many of you have been doing something and you're by yourself and you kind of see something really funny, like a video or you read something funny and you start laughing and you just kind of want to turn and find somebody to laugh with you? Isn't it weird when you just start laughing really hard by yourself? That's a God thing in us. We're, we're wired to celebrate in community, to rehearse truth in community, to turn to somebody else and say, Yes, this is truth. Let's live like it together. This is our spiritual act of worship. So where does this power to worship God come from? 2 Timothy 1.7 says this, For God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but a power of love and self-discipline. I've said at the beginning, God has never and will never call us to do something he has not equipped us to do. When thinking through true worship and avoiding idols, there's usually this response that surfaces. When when somebody hears a verse like this and they think, yeah, I'm kind of out of line here. I'm looking at this wrong or I'm I'm letting this idol have an influence. Here's here's the general response sometimes that can come up. Man, I'm going to do better tomorrow. I'm going to get it right. Tomorrow, I'm gonna pull myself together. I'm gonna take this step. I'm gonna do this. And and how long does that usually last? It's the old classic line nobody has any idea how hard it is to be good until they actually try to be good. And, And the point is this you and I can't do this on our own. We need an external voice inside of us to do what we can't do by ourselves. The power and results do not come from external efforts trying to do things for ourselves. The power of our worship is in the power of the Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit's power in us that produces self-discipline and love and care and forgiveness. It's the fruit of the Spirit to help us worship, to bring back the wonder of God, to to bring to remembrance all the things that God has done for us. And when the church rehearses and remembers this worship and wonder of God, the idols of this world prove powerless. In comparison, it's that old hymn, all other ground is sinking sand. We worship by the power of the Spirit, a spirit not of fear, timidity, but of power and of love and self-discipline. Now I want to close because I think the sum of this whole idea of worship and message can be found in Colossians three seventeen. it says this whatever you do in word or deed do all in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks through him to God the Father the message says it this way and sing, seeing your hearts out to God let every detail in your lives words actions whatever be done in the name of the master Jesus thanking God the Father every step of the way And so this morning, the invitation is clear. I want to close this morning by taking some time to worship God and asking Him to examine our lives. To think. To discern with the Spirit where areas have subtly crept in and God is no longer on the throne in that area. Where there's a pursuit of this idol or that idol that has replaced the right order for God. So, Seth and the team's going to come play, and we're going to pray. And we're going to remember God to help us understand. Remember, even no matter how off I am, how petty I can be, how prideful I can be, that God, in His unconditional love, still loves me. And He wants me and accepts me. Through the work of His Son Jesus, we need help—His help—to stop listening to the lies of our culture, even of our own heart. This subtle, this subtle pull—we have to, to seek other things for f- fulfillment, to trust other things. So I want to invite you to pray with me. God, I thank you for this morning, and I thank you for this these passages, these reminders. God, ever since the fall of creation, there has been a fight. There has been a pull of who gets the rightful worship. And so, God, this morning, as we lay ourselves before you, would you please point out those areas of our heart? Finger point those areas of our heart to help us know and remember the truth that that area is not going to be fulfilled unless you're there. God, in light of everything you have done for us and through us and in us, therefore, therefore let us live in a way that intentionally and deliberately worships you. And God, we confess this morning for believing that some of these things in our lives that we've pursued could take your place and give us fulfillment. We we pray that you would forgive us for trusting in things and not trusting you. God, help us, we pray, to give our hearts and minds this attitude of reverence and devotion and amazement, a heart of worship, in Jesus' name.